0: There it is. Hey, all right. We're in business here. Well, thank you for everyone coming in here. So I have a confession to make. This is literally my first time at creation. And it's not because I grew up in a land where creation was this foreign thing. My church actually went to creation, but my dad always said I couldn't go. All right. So like, I know, I know. Maybe your dad was like mine, where he thought, you know, the Jesus rock music was still the devil's rock music. And, like, we, I don't know what he was picturing, but literally when I got the invitation to come here and share, I felt like I had to ask permission from my dad. I was like, Dad, I know I'm 35 now, but is it cool if I go to creation? <laughs> like, so I finally made it. And uh, Travis made a good point, though. Like, you know, if I'm sleeping in a bed, I haven't gone to creation. I need to. Be in a tent where the water's coming in, right? You know, the rain is pouring. Absolutely. Well, I am glad to be here, uh, and my dad actually did approve of me coming here, just so you guys know. I was not disobedient. Um, he just said, don't go to the Newsboys show because, you know, no, I'm just kidding. He actually likes them now. In fact, uh, I've been uh, a youth pastor in youth ministry for 15 years or so, pretty close to it, and I'm with the National Network of Youth Ministry. That's us. And uh, it's been so long that, uh, well, I tell you what, I, w- I want a quick show of hands as we're in here. Raise your hand if you are full-time youth ministry, ministry of some sort, raise your hand. All right. That's what I thought. How about part-time? Volunteer. Awesome. How about this? This is my favorite question. How many here, you've been doing youth ministry since the late 1900s? See, there we go. I see you, Ray. Now, I was going to give out an award for that, but you already won an award. So do you want a hat now to go with it? Or, um, you want? Yeah, you the hat. You've earned it. Hey, round of applause for that youth ministry. <laughs> uh, in some ways, I was hoping to print off a trophy that was, uh, it's called the Mr. Shockey. Did you hear about this? Like stories of youth pastoring back in the day, they would have a bench, and they would have a metal grid, have someone sit onto it. Do you know what they'd hook up to it? A car battery. And they would ask you questions, and if you were wrong, they would zap you. Okay, we've come a long way in youth ministry, can I just say that? So congratulations on the Mr. Shocky Award. I still feel like that's appropriate, Uh, but just hilarious. I tell you what, folks, there are days, whether you're volunteer paid or not, whatever it is, there are days we ask ourselves, why am I in youth ministry? And as for me, I have to go back and say, it wasn't my fault. I blame God. (laughs) And by God's grace, I can still say that and smile, even in the moment in my life when it all crashed and burnt and fell down all around me. You see, I was a student uh, at Liberty University. And I was originally there to be a history teacher. And I know, right? Best subject ever. Take that, math. And during that time, so much of my motivation was to be with students and to be like my grandfather, who was an art teacher at Southerton for 35 years. And teens, everywhere we go, they're like, yo, Mr. G. I'm like, we're in Florida. How do people know you here? It's crazy. And that was my hope. And I never believed in the call. I was always like, okay, pastors, you're just really making this sound really rosy for something you want to do. I didn't believe in it until I experienced it. During a chapel time, someone was talking about the need for ministry and people to go into ministry. And in that very moment, I had my own Isaiah 6 moment where I just felt like as I was asking God, I was like, God, who's going to do this? I felt like, so I don't know if God has shoulders, but I felt like he shrugged his shoulders at me. And I was just like, he was just like, if it's not going to be you, who's it going to be? And it was in that moment I switched to a ministry major, and I've been chasing after ministry the whole time, and was lucky and fortunate enough to have people show me the way. As soon as I graduated college, I got to do a one-year internship in the church that I was going through in college. People were starting to really connect with and really getting me in. And so after my year, I kind of reached the end, and they're like, this is awesome. We don't have a place for you. I was like, okay, no harm, no foul. I'll do what every sane person does. I went to rural Indiana to be a youth pastor, like town of 400 in middle of the cornfields, you know what I'm saying? Very different from where I grew up in. But as I was there, it was amazing. God showed up in a big way. But while I was out there, God continued to, to work on me and to churn in my heart just the desire to be home and to minister to my people, southeastern Pennsylvania just the Philly area and I was once again so fortunate so blessed to come back to that same church at a new campus or at least that's what I thought I thought I was fortunate you see I was their first youth pastor and um this is actually a picture of the day that we moved my stuff in and my wife you know we we didn't have as much stuff as we do now but uh It's a picture of my dad and me, and you can see in the background, you're like, wow, there was a lot of snow that day. It was late April, and we had lots of snow. That should have been my first sign (laughs) that I made a terrible decision (laughs) before it all crashed and burned. Why are you in ministry? Sometimes... Whether you're paid, whether you're a volunteer, you wrestle with this question. Why do you do what you do? Why do you get home after your busy day of work and then rush to the church? Why do you wake up at 5 a.m. and do what you can to serve or meet with kids for breakfast? Or, or why do you do all of this? And, and honestly, there are some days where the reason we do this is the only thing we have that keeps us in ministry. I've often described people that are trying to join the youth ministry team. I say, listen, we're the Marines of the church. It's just the bottom line. It's the hardest to join, but of course it's the most rewarding ministry in the church. I fully believe that. And it's not because of the job description. Are you ready for this? Uh, When you read the job description, whether you're paid or not, listen, if if you are a paid volunteer, if you're a a volunteer, paid volunteer, that's a double negative. If you are in full-time... Bless you, because I've seen these job descriptions. If you're a volunteer, pray for the people that that are leading you. So this is, you got to read in between the lines, okay? When you're reading a a resume and it says, must participate in church-wide activities, do you know what that means? It means you'll be there every time the church doors are open, but people don't have to come to your stuff. Can I get an amen? Also, you're probably leading VBS. (laughs) Next, must be a skilled preacher, now, if you read the fine print on that, you see. You gotta be funny as to like you know, but not like too funny. And it has to be like Bible, but not like too much Bible, because you know, not too much Bible. That's a fun line. Next, must execute parent trainings. Not that they'll show up. They're just really glad that they happen. <laughs> you ever had a parent training and you're like, cool, where are you guys at? <laughs> They're busy. Next, must be an excellent visionary. So the vision of that one elder <laughs> uh, is in carrying out their vision. That's kind of the, if you read them between the lines. Next, able to maintain a calendar of events more than any human in their right mind would. Next, of upstanding cal- character Must have the wisdom of a 40-year-old, but, like, the cool drawl of a 24-year-old. Can I get an amen? Finally, well-compensated upon hiring (laughs) in eternal riches. (laughs) Gotcha. (laughs) Listen, youth ministry is hard, and when you're in the same trenches, no matter where you're at, there there is a bottom line of where we relate to each other. You guys have some of the same stories for sure. But can I tell you, in those moments when you ask, what has youth ministry gotten you? What has your service actually done for you? I want you to, to think of my friend, also in ministry. His name's Paul. What has ministry gotten him? Let's read this together. He's going through listening list of his criteria. He says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Can we slow down a second? Like, this is the path that Paul was on, and he's just writing about it. It's like, oh, yeah, remember that one time I almost died? He goes on. He says, five times at the hands of the Jews, I received the 40 lashes Last one. Five times. Next, he says, three times I was beaten with with rods. Once I was stoned, three times shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles. All right, so like the own, your own people? Yeah, they were trying to kill me. Oh, and the people that weren't my people? Yeah, they were trying to kill me. It's like, okay, everyone's trying to kill you, Paul. Got it. Okay. And dangers from rivers, robbers, my own people, Gentiles, danger in the city, in the wilderness, at the sea, false brothers, in turmoil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. Whew. Listen, sometimes I need a reality check. When I think, like, man, ministry's tough, I'm really suffering for the Lord. Sometimes I dial up Paul and I'm just like, okay, maybe I'm doing okay. Maybe you haven't had this type of external pressure. Maybe you haven't experienced this. Maybe you experienced some of it. And maybe you're sitting here saying, like, okay, I haven't gone through all that, but can I tell you something you have gone through that's similar to him? You've gone through the internal struggle that Paul is about to describe. You've experienced. Do you know what he says in the next verse? He says this. Apart from all these things, you know, all these little things like nearly dying, being whipped, all these things. He says, apart from all that, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. My anxiety for all of the churches. Paul's saying like, yeah, being adrift at sea, not great. But internally, I carry the weight of all those people I ministered to. Folks, whether you're volunteer or paid, it's the same with you. You carry that same weight. I know you do. Maybe yours would read a little differently. We turn to a first Johnny Rad 1128. It's the semi heretical version if you're, you know, flipping through in your bibles. Uh, maybe I hijacked this a little bit and switched it to say this. Apart from all the other things, the low pay, feeling under-researched, Constantly blocked on plans, stretched, feeling like I don't have the answers, feeling too young, then feeling too old. On top of all of this. There's a daily pressure on me for my anxiety for this generation. That they follow Jesus all the days of their life. You have that same anxiety like Paul. And that's why you're in ministry, right? That's why you're in ministry. It's for the people like Becky, whose mom hits her when no one's looking. It's for people like Sammy, 15 years old and pregnant. It's the people like Nair, whose dad's not around in his life. The countless guys hooked on porn, smoking weed, whatever the vice is. It's the people like Abby Jean, who took her own life. Folks, every one of these scenarios are true stories that I carry with me over the years. Everyone, that's why we do what we do. We continue to offer ourselves, we continue to pour out, we continue to bog down our schedule, all of it. And can I tell you what teens actually need? It's this. This isn't super creative, but I think it's profound. Teens actually need a meek vice shepherd. Meekness. Now, meekness isn't too sexy nowadays, am I right? When it comes to leadership, we need strength. We need vision casting. We need plans. We need PDFs, and we need an app. All of this is great and fantastic, but what about meekness? Meekness is something that Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth. It seems kind of important. Meekness isn't concerned about building platforms, building influence, creating a following. Meekness is concerned about being faithful to the grind, showing up. And whether it's 40 kids on a given night or three kids you're taking to Dairy Queen, like Todd said, meekness shows up and gives their all no matter what meekness your kids need to see a meek example of you and they need to see you in the vice president chair the vice shepherd chair you you ain't the chief shepherd some of us we have that hero complex right like i'm the one that's gonna save all these kids no that's not your job that's jesus's be that meek vice shepherd show up offer yourself. Because here's the thing. If I were to ask you, how would you fill this in? Maybe this blank right here, you wouldn't put meekness. Maybe for you, you would say like, man, you know what these kids need? They need someone cool. They need someone younger they need someone with a freer schedule. They need someone their age, someone they can relate to. And oftentimes, if you're wondering what you would put in there, it's usually what you're most insecure about in your own service, in your own ministry. But can I tell you the great news is that anyone can be meek, and no one should be able to minister out of who they are not because being someone else is super frustrating. Folks, your students don't need Justin Bieber. <laughs> They don't need Andy Stanley leading their kids. They need you as you have been constructed by God and charged up to serve them. That's what they need. They need the John Lowry's of the world. Now, if you were to Google John Lowry, you'd come up with 60 different John Lowry's before the one I'm talking about. You see, John Lowry was a leader in my Indiana youth group. I have a list on my phone. I literally have this list. It's the Youth Leader Hall of Fame. (laughs) The leaders that I've had over the years that have just been awesome and crushed it and just poured their heart out to kids. I have a note. So whenever I feel like despair of like, oh my word, am I the only one following you, Lord? (laughs) I can see their names. John Lowry probably isn't what you picture. He was a 60-year-old, kind of short, Definitely stocky guy who was helping out with youth ministry. He drove the bus for us. And he wasn't like this crazy outgoing this or that. He was someone who drove the bus and was consistent. He owned a bakery. Pretty good, right? So you show up, you give the kids the castoffs you can't sell. You're like, oh, no, here's semi-expired cupcakes. That's going to win every time. John Lowry showed up, and every kid that got on the bus, can I tell you this? They never felt overlooked. They knew that someone was watching them. We need people like John Lowry to be the heroes of this youth ministry thing. We need people like him to be the ones we're looking towards. We need irrelevant shepherds. In an age looking for relevancy, we need ill relevance. Can I show you a Henry Nowen quote? I actually just read this last week, and I was like blown away by it. I thought it was so good. Take a look at this. He says, I'm deeply convinced that the Christian leader of the future is called to be completely irrelevant and to stand in this world with nothing to offer but his or her own vulnerable self. To enter into a deeper solidarity with the anguish underlying all the glitter of success and bring it to the light of Jesus there. We need more irrelevant leaders to embrace this because it's exactly as Jesus says in Matthew 11. His invitation is this. This is his invitation to you as a leader, you who are constantly pouring out. He says this, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That's the chief shepherd. He goes on. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If we follow the trail of meekness with the chief shepherd, the pressure's off in ministry. Your kids need someone who is being led in this, chasing after meekness. Not popularity. Not anything to do on a phone. And nothing but presence and following Jesus in front of teens. That meekness. You live it after you've found it. I'm telling you, that's what we can offer teens that the world can't. So what teens actually need is a meek vice shepherd. But it doesn't stop there. It's a meek vice shepherd who knows the way forward who knows the way forward. Listen, we can't mail it in when it comes to critical thought, when it comes to prayerfully planning, when it comes to showing up prepared to the best of our ability. We can't just show up and say, it's enough if I'm just here. We need to be ready to have a plan to take our kids somewhere specific. 75% of it is showing up, but it's not all of it. May 2nd, every year, will be a day that lives in infamy. You're like, wait, wasn't that like June 6th, Pearl Harbor? Did I get that right? Hold on, where's the history buff? Did I I get that right, June 6th? Sounds right? Either way. Dang it. I'm thinking D-Day. They're both infamy. There we go. Yeah, lots of death. May 2nd, not as much death. But infamy for me. You see, when I came back to this church, fresh, like, Landed the dream role. I was like, man, this is it. Here we go. It didn't take long before I realized there were two roads going separate. We were reaching kids. Like, we were reaching messed up kids. Like, really messed up. And it was something awesome. Kids were coming to Christ. And like, there was a good pocket of kids who were, like, excited and ready to go. And then there was, there was just more pressure and more weirdness and more tension from leadership. And I was just like, listen, I, I don't understand what's really happening. And I'm not great with conflict. Like I kind of turtle up and like, uh, stop yelling at me. You know, <laughs> that's me. But May 2nd is the day that will always stick with me. I call it T day, T day. Because back in January, before the initial T day, everyone else got cost of living raises on staff. Do you know what I got? I got a document with 10 things I needed to improve if I wanted to increase my pay. And feeling blindsided and feeling like blown away, I was, I was stunned and in silence. And, and the person sitting across the table said, what are, what are you thinking right now? And I was like, I feel like I got an ultimatum and my job's at risk. And he said, well, don't think of it that way. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. I knew that in six months on, Jan, or on June 1st, we would have a review, see where we were at. May 2nd rolls around, and I was fired for not being good enough at my job. I didn't call it T-Day because it, I was terminated. I called it T-Day because the phrase I had to use is that I was transitioning out of the role. And if I were to stir up trouble or say any other story, I would lose my severance for my wife and my newborn child. T Day. Ministry can be tough. Ministry can be tough. But as I'm looking back, I realize that I was not able to ascend the three year chasm. Have you guys heard of this? No, because I just made it up. You ready? Looking back at this, I can kind of see what happened. Now, if you're a volunteer, I want you to realize that don't check out and just be like, well, this is just for paid people. No, like this is like the status and optimism of the ministry that I'm going to show you. As soon as you hire a new youth pastor, there are expectations, there's optimism, there's belief, there are very many opinions flying around. Now, as the paid pastor, your optimism... Starts off really good. You, we know the honeymoon phase. You've heard of this. This is the same in ministry. You start off just being like, yes, I have found the best church on earth with the best people. And your optimism in your first however many months keeps going up, 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 up. And then eventually, there's the moment. The moment it drops. You see that? Just boom. Maybe it's the realization that people are talking behind your back. Maybe it's getting called into that one meeting. Maybe it's just a steady realization of oh no, am I even a good fit? Whatever it is, there's that oh crap moment. Can I say that? Can you all handle that? Okay, I said the crap word. There's the oh crap moment and as since we experienced life through emojis, in the beginning honeymoon phase and then the oh crap moment and we're just like oh my word, what are we going to do? It's usually after the first year too. Now Trust me, I've been, in the, I've been in the spot where it was like four months in and you had to endure. But you take this dip and then you got to dig out of the chasm. The honeymoon's over. Now everyone else is kind of on a, a different path too. Every experience is a little different, but oftentimes I've found that the students in your group probably aren't feeling as bad as you are during this oh crap moment when, when everything kind of, you know, gets a little challenging. You see like here, like, they're on the up and up, and then maybe a little bit after, they're kind of like, whoa, what's going on? But they're generally bought in. Your students are generally bought in. Parents, they're generally bought in, right? Like, have you guys ever had weird tension with the parents? It's not fun. The parent just wants the best for their kid, and they're often going to feel the same way that their kid does about the group. If they come home and the kid's like, oh my word, this is the best, and we did this one game, and you know, kid lost an arm, but what are you going to do? You know, that's, that's normal stuff. And the parent is like, hey, if my kid's excited, I'm excited. But sometimes the dip hits right around when the oh crap moment happens in your life. And then you have those. Can we be real? Is this a safe place? We have those parents. Where no matter what you do, they already think you suck and you should be out of here. (laughs) They're already out on you. (laughs) It happens. There are people with lots of opinions where they're just like, this ministry isn't going anywhere. I need to go to the church down the road to save my beautiful children. It happens. Now, folks, there are a lot of opinions all over the place. Sometimes the leadership team is super bought in and just like, yeah, we're in sync, man. Let's go. Sometimes... As a a volunteer, you feel the same thing. As a volunteer, you're like, you have all these hopes and expectations of the ministry in the first year. And then as year two comes around, sometimes ministry under a new person is the hardest. That's the part where people are like, hey, this person's not operating like I thought he or she would. Hey, I thought we were going to improve in this, but these seem like empty promises. Or maybe the, the head leader is saying like, hey, I thought I could take this somewhere, but it feels like all oh, we're getting is kickback. A lot of times year two is the hardest with a new ministry leader. But then you start to dig out and everyone starts to climb together. Except lead pastors because, you know, they're all over the place. <laughs> lead pastors can be in your corner and just be like the best thing. Or it could be that there's just nothing you can do to impress them. You can't win them over. Who knows? I've been with a lot of great lead pastors. But it's always a crapshoot. This is the general trajectory of a ministry. Now, I didn't survive it (laughs) at one time. And looking back, I'll say this. I'll take 33% of the blame. I'll take 33%. Because there was a part of me that wasn't great at strategic thinking. I had a leader who kind of came into my office one time and, and she sat down and she's like, hey. And I knew she didn't really get it or she had a hard time latching on to what we're doing. I'm like, hey, so um, what are we doing? She's like, what are we doing? And I was, I was like, what do you mean what we're doing? She's like, where are we going? And I was like, I don't understand the question. What she was asking is, hey, what are we specifically doing? Where are we specifically taking these kids? And unfortunately, at the time, I didn't have a great answer. If I went back, I'd have a better answer now. But at the time, I didn't. And it wasn't long before she lost trust in me and my leadership and stepped down. You see, Jesus showed this intentionality in his ministry, too because we've got to know the way forward. Jesus did this. Do you remember when Jesus sent them out by twos? Jesus sent his disciples out as like a test crash course for the Great Commission. He said, I'm going to send you out in twos, and we're going to mix it up. He gave, there was intentionality there. There's also intentionality when he would heal someone and say, hey, don't tell anyone. There was a reason. There was intentionality when he said, hey, I'm telling you these things. You're not going to understand it now, but later you will. And there's also something else. Who here you've watched The Chosen? Raise your hand. So The Chosen has been fantastic. My favorite part of the second season is when he's working on the Sermon on the Mount. Because this sounds weird. I thought Jesus just went everywhere and was like, behold, salt of the earth, if it doth lose its saltiness. Yeah, I'm just like, the thought of like, what if Jesus had to prepare a sermon What if he actually ran it by Matthew, like was depicted here? Like, it it just blew my mind. Like, Jesus, maybe the humanity side of him, he had to prepare and gather his thoughts, too. And in the same way, we need to do that. Dallas Willard has a brilliant quote. He said this. He said, every church needs to be able to answer two questions. First, what is our plan for making disciples? And second, does our plan work? And it took until the end of my time at that church as a youth pastor where I went to another local church and I had a mentor kind of pick me up and dust me off a little bit and be like, hey, you can get back in the game, man. Like stick with Jesus, stick with ministry. You're not done yet. And one of the times we sat down, he helped me think through how to make a plan how to know what I was looking at, how to be more than just, I'm Johnny and I'm good with teens, right? Like it was actually like intentional discipleship. He drew three circles. How many of you know what kind of diagram this is? What's the four-letter word? Venn diagram, very good. So my mentor drew these three circles here, and he described what I'm going to describe to you. He described that when we're investing in people, we're investing in three different relationships. The up is the vertical. So we're going to, like, translate it for teen purposes here. So imagine the kid before God. That's that vertical relationship that we're investing in. That prayer, worship, connectedness, that student before God. But then we also work on the in, within Christian community. So we work on that Christian community side of it where they feel like this is their faith community and these are my people. We can grow together. This is a safe place to ask questions and wrestle with doubt. But then we also move people towards caring about those outside of the faith community. You see, everything you do in student ministry falls into these three things. Some of you are like, what about like when I change the light bulbs? (laughs) I'm like, well, we'll just throw that, like, in community because community is better well-lit than not well-lit. Amen? You know? I don't know. It's not perfect. But everything we do falls into those categories. And as I went through and just kind of sat with this and was just like, God, you might be, like, turning on some light bulbs in my own mind. There's seven subcategories that we do in student ministry. And here's the first one. We're going we're gonna to take it brick by brick. And then I'll be done. In the vertical relationship of students before God, we take a lot of time to develop the head, but we also develop the heart. You see, when we say we're developing the head side of it, we're talking about the things that make Christianity a worldview. We're talking about theology. We're talking about how to read your Bible, how to have good reading of your Bible and good application. We're talking about the things of the faith that take us back to doctrine, that take us back to creeds, all that kind of stuff. Anyone who does confirmation, is there anyone here who confirmation is a regular part of your church? Nice. Absolutely. This is a huge part of developing the head. It's giving kids that solid place to stand on, connected to the word of God and how it plays out in the real world. That's the head side of what we do. But then there's the heart. Now, maybe the heart is easier to picture. That's how students worship God. That's how they feel connected to him in prayer. That's how they hear from God. Can I say that? Can I say God speaks, you know, safe say theologically? When God speaks to them, that's that relationship as a son, as a daughter, where we can work through it. Confession of sin, that's the heart. There's that relationship. You see how everything we do fits into that in the vertical relationship. Next, we have the end. So in this portion, the word is community, right? Like that's that's the building the relationships for those who are in the faith, where your youth group is the place that's seen as a safe haven. It's the place where they say, these are my people. These are my friends. I can go to war with them. I can learn about Christ together. I can come here and I can find shelter from the rest of the world, get charged up to go back into it. That's community. Underneath that, you have mentorship. And honestly, I describe that as putting godly people in the lives of young people, whether it's leaders like yourself or whether it's developing parents. That all fits under this. Giving teens the path forward and have it lived out in front of them. That's mentorship. Final thing in this category is gifting. Letting them use their gifts in the church, whether it's developing them to join teams in the church and serve on a Sunday, whether it's coming across them and saying like, hey, you're really good at this. How do we develop that? Whether it's, I don't know, giving them a guitar and being like, hey, you're all we got. Can you just like go lead worship? (laughs) Stuff like that. The ability to develop their gifting. And then finally, this. For those outside of Christian fellowship. It's the idea of serving, which is meeting the physical needs, and sharing the gospel, which is meeting the spiritual needs. You can picture those. Now, listen, I want to give you just a quiet moment. If you're here with teammates, I want you to talk and just kind of discuss, and then I kind of want to have a little bit of a share time. I've been in too much talking. I want you to kind of share just the bird's eye overall view where is your group strong, and where do you feel your group is weak? So remember, head and heart, you probably can latch on to that. Community, mentorship, that's, that's parent ministry, that's developing leaders, that's putting godly individuals in teens' lives. Gifting, serve and share. Discuss with the people around you. Where do you think you guys are strong, and where do you think you guys are weak? Ready? Discuss. All right, let's hear some sharing. And no, that wasn't a literal thirty seconds. You guys do the same thing, right? You're like, yeah, it didn't count. Felt like thirty seconds. All right, who wants to share? Like maybe a strength, weakness, pushback, call me a liar, whatever you need. The floor is yours. <laughs> I see. I see this table right here. You guys look ready to answer. Let's hear some thought. It, yeah. So that's that's really insightful stuff you shared. And absolutely, the stronger the community is for the in the more confident they are to step into the out, for sure. Um, so, yeah, that was really good. And here's a bummer, too. Community is harder to build in high schoolers than it is middle schoolers. Listen, if you're in your, you know, if you have a, a new leader in your church and it's like their first year, just expect that juniors and seniors are oftentimes mentally checked out with a new leader. They're like, change into the guard? Cool, I'm out. It's terrible, I'll fight against it every time, I will invite, but what, is what I constantly see is the pushback of like, it's hard to jump back into community when the leader shifts, unfortunately. But yeah, so you invest in that middle school core as they come up, man, you guys might be humming in a couple years, that, that's awesome. Middle schoolers are the best by the way, can we just all agree? No, <laughs> I love middle school, man, they're up for anything. Someone else uh, want to share strengths, weaknesses? Yeah. Share your faith. And they're like, with who? <laughs> my mom's a Christian. <laughs> yeah. No, so I grew up in a Christian school, and I felt that frustration of, like, I want to share my faith. But not only did it, was I, like, in a Christian school, but, like, everyone on my baseball team and stuff, they already believed. I'm like, well, what do I do? So, yeah, that sometimes we need help uh, getting out of that shell. You know, Philly Project. Whoop a great way to do it. Um, but yeah, so let me ask you a question. Do you guys have a very highly formed head? Like, is that, a, is that a pretty strong point of the relationship? Folks, it's so crazy. Like, this is starting to sound like Enneagram witchcraft, how it, like, you know, just <laughs> to each other. But sometimes, as Christians, we develop this head, and we believe theology is the only reason we come together, and we forget that evangelism Oh, I'm going to say it. Oh, I'm going to step in it. I'm sorry. Evangelism might be more important. Or we need to cheat that way a little more just to bring everything back into balance. You know what I mean? Like to have an active faith. Doers of the word, not hearers only. Throwing it out there. I'll shoot you my email. You can send me all the hate mail you want. Uh, but yeah, develop theology super important. We need to make sure we're getting kids moving. And what I see across the country is this. When it comes to the out, we're getting really good at the serving, meeting physical needs. As our climate becomes more <laughs> political and combative, a lot of people have dialed down the share to kind of be like, well, that just needs to be relational. You can't talk to people you don't know about the faith. And you can. You can. I did this. Uh, I'll show you a, an assessment in a second. The only group of all the assessments I've given out, the only group that was really good at sharing their faith was crew, (laughs) an organization centered around sharing their faith. I've never come across a church that says, you know, our strength of our ministry is actually training kids to share the gospel. And we need it. We need it. But our society is very much pushing against it. Absolutely. So you guys are kind of starting to see the wheels turning. It, It helps to picture this. And what I've done over the years is this. Every trimester, we have a different goal. The group I'm with now, we're really focusing on community and mentorship because I'm part-time youth pastor. I've just been in this church. I'm like, we got to trust each other and we got to get our leaders on board. So this summer, these are the two things we're focusing on. But there have been semesters in the past where I said, hey, our kids at this point, we need to get them worshipers. So that dictates our calendar. Do you see how that works? It says like, we're going to really have worship nights that like drill down. We're going to do a series on prayer and like actually pray. Or we've had seasons where we say, Summer is service. Every summer, we're going to hit the streets. We're going to close down our regular programming. We're going to do more service projects. Do you see how it's so important to articulate where you're trying to take teens? This isn't just getting a smorgasbord of these are all great ideas, because we will default to our strengths and our hobby horses. There are some of you. Man, leadership development is your thing. And in your ministry, you're just pumping them out, baby. You know, you're just like, yeah, little John Wesley's all over the place or John Calvin's, whatever you prefer. Just all over the place, man. And then, but then it's like, oh, but if if we just focus on that, we're really leaving out the vertical relationship. Do you see how every part's important? We need to get good at all of these, we need to offer these. Now, you have areas that you're naturally gifted in but we need to work to find leaders who help us think through all seven areas. We need to realize the ebb and flow of a calendar where summer is a great time to start looking out. Where the in, maybe that's maybe you dial down programming and you beef up potlucks. Like Bob Lenz said, like he built a whole church that way, potlucks. All of this is the framework that sometimes we need to picture what we're after. Because, folks, I'm not that smart. It took me way too long. Like, like I said, I'll take 33% of the blame. It's because I couldn't picture where I was taking people. Ten years later, I'm a little smarter. Now I feel like I have a framework where I can say, all right, God, what are we doing? Where are we taking your kids? This summer, what do we need to be about? And as you work through, it gives you language. It gives you rails. And I got to tell you, I actually have changed my whole budget to go in these seven categories. Where every dollar I spend, I have to say, the reason we spent this is because it's a head thing, you know? Maybe it was paying curriculum, heart thing, whether it's, I don't know, communion elements, right? Like, it helps you think through why you do what you do. Doing stuff, painting the, the youth room, I don't know, community, I just kind of throw it in there and be like, yeah, we need a good space, that's fine. All that to say... Hopefully that gets the ball rolling because we need to do everything we can for teens. We need to model it, but we also need to spend time before God and say, where should I take these teens? Now, final thoughts. I have an assessment that can actually, you can go through, and some of these checkpoints as you're going through, as you rate yourself on it, it'll show you which areas of those seven areas are your strongest and which are your weakest. So if you have a QR code, you can pull that up. It's a 70 question assessment. It's pretty hefty, pretty hefty. But imagine if you took five people on your team through it. Maybe you, two parents, two students, your whole, whoever. You take your people through it, you're gonna get data to really talk about. You're gonna get some thoughts of, huh, never thought of that before. And all that's available to you. And I will reach out to you after you do it with your results and kind of a, hey, conversation. Can we talk about it? So feel free to do that if you're like, hey, I can't do the QR code. Just send me an email right here. If you have any questions about, I don't know, anything in ministry, sports, stocks, don't ask me about finances. I'm I'm a mess. Um, But, yeah, this is my contact. Feel free to reach out to me for anything. And as we just blasted through with a hose, I would love to give you the chance. Are there any questions, whether it's this, whether it's the optimism grid, whatever it is, are there any thoughts and questions that have come up through this time? Beautiful, I have just eradicated every question from your mind, you are all ready to go. Let's do this, I want you In this final spot, I will pray over you, and I want you to receive it as if you were the one praying it. Can you close your eyes with me? I want you to put out your hands and listen as I pray this over you, as if these are your words. I love you, God. You know I do. How natural it is to love you. You are perfect. You're beautiful, pure, powerful, absolutely truthful, and kind. You have been so generous to me that saying thank you seems pitiful at times. But far more powerful in my life is knowing and feeling that you love me. You know exactly and completely who I am. all my ugly thoughts my mangled motivations my pretending my irrational fears my pride and my unfaithfulness and you still love me I know you love me you know me And yet, because you love me, you let me lead others. I do not understand it, but I am grateful. Jesus, thank you for the privilege of leading others. Thank you for the privilege of waking up every day and working on our flaws and battling our flesh. Pray that we'll be phenomenally meek, followers of you, and lead many teens to Christ. It's in your name. Amen. Thanks, everyone.